this is part 2 of episode 12 of season 1 of On the Hill. If you haven't listened to part 1, I would recommend you stop now and listen to that episode first, for the story of episode 12 will make much more sense if you've listened to that part first. The 14th of May 1940, in the port of Ichmuden, hundreds of people were trying to find a means to escape. Germany is in the middle of invading Holland and Belgium, and only four days before, Winston Churchill has become the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Jack Haustiker and his family approached the SS Bodegraven, a cargo ship, to try and secure passage elsewhere. Listen to Charlene von Sayer explain how they got into the ship. Jacques is, is, was my grandfather, um, and he was one of the preeminent art dealers in Europe before the war. Everything was going really well for him until the Nazis invaded, and he was married to my grandmother, and my dad was already born. He was about a year old, uh, less than a year old then. The Nazis invaded, and... They were still there and they left a couple of days after because they realized they really did have to leave and they were on one of the last boats out. And yeah, the, the visas were expired, yes. Um, but right. they were recognized, the, the, um, the troops recognized my grandmother because she had performed for them because she was a singer. And because of that, I mean, they were very lucky. They were permitted yeah. on, on board and they made it. Seeing themselves overwhelmed, the Netherlands troops set the oil tanks of the Shell refinery in the port of Ibmuden burning, and the British troops were disembarking at the same time. This is when the SS Bodegraven sails away, originally only authorized to land on a Dutch colony, recorded as Curaçao, in the waters of the Caribbean. Two days later, on the 16th of May, 1940, the Bodegraven arrives at Falmouth. The folks' records of arrivals notes down, and I quote, four instructions, 258 refugees on board, end quote. This is the first time in 1940 that the records signal refugees, and it would continue to do so until the summer of the same year, sometimes in the thousands. The port of Falmouth was overwhelmed by the demand that year. A note on the record suggests that they might not be accurate because of the influx. Among the refugees that came on the Bodegraven were the Gaussticker family, Jacques, Desi, and their son, Edo. Also among them were 74 children and young people from the Burgerberg House Orphanage in Amsterdam. They had been hidden in the hold of the cargo ship with the help of Gertrude Wiesmuller-Meyer. Rabbi Harry Jacobi MBE was one of these children, and in an interview for the Association of Jewish Refugees, he describes the difficult journey where they didn't have food but biscuits and water, and where they didn't know where they were going. It would be days before permission was granted for the boat to reach and dock at Liverpool. He also describes being shot at by German fighter planes as they left Ichmuden and docking beneath rescue boats for cover. Bodegraven was the very last ship to leave Ichmuden just before the surrender of Holland, just before the Germans took control of the port. 
the Bodegraven carried the last group of the kinder transport to ever come to England. The last group of 10,000 Jewish children and young people spirited out of the clutches of war by an international network of people who came together to overcome the odds and offer rescue and shelter. During the war years, 75% of the 140,000 Jewish remaining in the Netherlands died in Nazi concentration camps. At the end of the war, the number of Jewish killed in the Holocaust would be over 6 million. After orchestrating an escape the likes of which fiction would envy, Jack managed to get far away from the war, but heartbreakingly not far enough from tragedy. Um, they were all, you know, under the, I guess, in the hull of the boat, and my grandfather needed to get some air, and he mm -hmm. went up on the deck, and it was dark, and he fell into a dark um, open hatch. Mm -hmm. And he, he was killed instantly. So, um, my grandmother, you know, realized she needed help and trying to find out what happened. And the seaman that went to look for him fell into the same hole. And when they went to recover him, they found my grandfather underneath. <sighs> so... Yeah, just it's like you can't even make this this kind of stuff no, up. No, you can't. Right. Oh. So yeah, so that that's that is how my grandfather ended up at the cemetery in Falmouth. So yeah, so and he left behind his real estate, his three pieces of real estate, which are extraordinary, and um, and his huge art collection. And everything was ultimately stolen by the Nazis and then the Dutch government. Refugee killed. Fall into ship's hold. Body landed at Falmouth. An inquest was held at Falmouth on Friday on a Dutch refugee who fell down a hold in a refugee ship and fractured his skull. Deceased was Jacques Goodsticker of Oostermeyer, Oudrecht, Holland, an art dealer, who had come to the westernmost port. Mr. W. L. Jarvis, consul for the Netherlands, was present. The widow said her husband was 43 years of age and had no worries as far as she knew except that of leaving home. He left the cabin on the night of the 16th, saying he wanted some fresh air. Jan Daniel Felafsky, boatswain of the ship, said he was told one of the passengers was missing and on searching found deceased at the bottom of one of the holds, which was thirty feet deep. On leaving his cabin, deceased must have gone the wrong way and walked into the hold by accident. It was pitch dark. In his opinion, death was accidental. Dr. Isaac Werensenbeck of Amsterdam, who was a passenger in the vessel, said deceased had fractured base of skull. There was no evidence of foul play. The coroner, Mr. L. J. Carlion, said he was satisfied death was accidental. There was no evidence to show deceased intended to take his life, and he returned a verdict accordingly. He wished to express sincere sympathy with the widow of the deceased in her great loss. She had already been through great trouble in escaping Amsterdam, 
He trusted she would find comfort among friends, and that in a short time she would be able to return to her own country. Lakes, Falmouth Packet, 24th of May, 1940. Normally, they would throw bodies overboard during during this time, but my grandmother, Daisy, um, just begged for them not to throw him overboard, and she, she finally was granted um, that wish, and she was mm-hmm. allowed to um, make funeral plans, but she could not stay ashore. Yeah. Um, and she, you know, she, I remember her, she told this to me, she re- requested a burial spot for my grandfather that had a view of the sea. It was very oh. important to her. And she wanted the strongest, most beautiful coffin available with tons of flowers. And she wanted to make sure that Cole Porter's song night and day would be played at the funeral. Wow. So she couldn't, was not allowed to stay for that. So she, mm. you know, was back on the, on the boat with my father who was just a baby. And then they, you know, long story short, ended up in um, Canada with the help of the Hearst family and the Kennedys and the Bromfmans. Um, and then they made their way to the United States in New York. Jack was buried at the Falmouth Cemetery on a plot overlooking the Swampool Lagoon. Unable to land and accompany him, Desi journeyed on with the SS Bodegraven to Liverpool, where the refugees landed and Desi and Edo continued on, first to Canada and then to New York. Desi managed to secure a burial for Jack and kept with her the Black Book, and thus their connection to their legacy. I went to visit the cemetery um, and my grandfather's grave, I believe it was back in 2008. And uh, I have some beautiful pictures um, of the grave and of Falmouth. You know, it's not an easy place to get to. No, um, it is. <laughs> quite um, but I was really, really glad that I, that I made the, the journey there. Wishing that I were near then. Maybe you'll ask me to come back again And maybe I'll say maybe The same month in which the Gausticker family escaped the Nazi invasion of Holland, Reich Marshal Hermann Göring, the second in command of the Third Reich, walked into 458 Herringracht, the Gausticker Gallery in Amsterdam. There's even a photo of him walking out after surveilling the gallery. He and other Nazi government officials and their allies would proceed to loot the Gausticker collection through force on authorized sales. The Gausticker collection began its own displacement across the world in the hands of the German government. Alois Miedel would continue to run the Hausticker Gallery on the same name, premises, and with the same former staff. Desi began to seek the return of the Hausticker collection as early as September 8, 1945. An article in the Washington News describes her, and I quote, She is not the usual elderly and sedate owner of a large art collection. She is youthful, slender, with a cheek of her native Vienna, and with his gaiety save when she touched on the tragic story of her flight from Holland, end quote. What was she like? What was Desi like? 
Daisy was amazing. Um, did you want me to tell you more about like her her life when she was young? I mean, she sure. she grew up she grew up very 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 privileged in Vienna. Um, mm-hmm. Her her mother was Selma Kurtz, who was the very famous um, Viennese opera singer. She was yeah. a, a, a yeah and. Her father was Joseph Halban, who was a famous doctor. Mm-hmm. And she and her brother, George, you know, they socialized with people like Klimt and um, oh, wow. Freud, you know, these names that you people don't throw around lightly. But Klimt, um, you know, taught my grandmother how to sketch. <laughs> wow. You know, just, just a little. <laughs> yeah. So that is um, that, that that gives you any idea of how she she grew up. It would take 60 years for the family to reclaim some of the works in the Haustiker collection. After the war, Desi married August Ponseyer and eventually Edo married Marie Langenwein, a competitive ice skater from West Germany. Marie and her daughters, Chantal and Charlene Ponseyer, have been at the forefront of their efforts to reclaim the Haustiker collection and remind the world of Jack's contribution. In this last portion of my interview with Charlene Bonsayer, we talked about the process of recovering the art from the Gaussticker collection. We started in 1997, really, oh, right. is when, when we started. Start. It was a, a, an amazing uh, Dutch journalist who was tipped off by somebody in the ministry of culture in in holland and mm-hmm. he the, he said to peter who's the journalist he said you know you really should do a little research and um find out what happened to the Houtsticker collection mm. and peter was not an art um journalist he was like doing sports mm. and all of that and he said i remember him saying i have no interest in this why am i doing <laughs> this you know but then once he got started he became fascinated with it. So mm-hmm. he called my mom in Connecticut at the time. My mom just didn't know if she should take him seriously because he was saying to her, do you know that your family could have a claim against the Dutch government? So we were like, what? Wow. You know, we, we don't really know. We know a little bit that my grandfather had a collection. We don't really know what happened to it, but is this guy legitimate? Who is he? So <laughs> before we could even figure it out, he had flown to the United States and he said, I'm here. I would like to meet with you. Mm-hmm. So we said, okay. So he came over and he said, do you have any paintings here um, that belonged to your grandmother? And we ironically did. And he said, mm-hmm. let me see. And he went over to the wall. He picked the painting up off the wall and he turned it around and he said, look, look at the back of the painting. We had never done that before. (laughs) I mean, you know, like who does that? Yeah. We didn't know. And then he said, look, here's your grandfather's label and his red wax seal that he put on all of his paintings. Mm. And I thought, hmm, this is interesting. And just a side note, you would think that the Nazis would take all of the markings off of the paintings but they left it on specifically because my grandfather was such a reputable dealer Mm. it authenticated the pieces if his name was on these paintings exactly it tells you about the poignancy how how specific and completely aware that action was oh totally it was very deliberate 
very mm-hmm. deliberate. Peter said, you know what, let's, you know, are you interested in, in pursuing this and, and doing some more research? And I was totally intrigued. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes. And he said, well, let's go to Washington. Let's go to the National Archives in Washington and see what we can find. So here I am going to Washington with this complete stranger. Um, and we dug up some really interesting documents that had previously been classified. And there were, you know, correspondence between mm-hmm. my grandmother and people that were running my grandfather's gallery. Uh, mm. in their own best interest, not my grandmother's. Mm. And she she was implicitly saying, you know, giving direction on what to do. And they were taking over and selling to the Nazis. And just, it was just a mess. And she couldn't, she couldn't do anything from the United States. No. So they sold, they sold the collection from under the family it was a forced sale yeah it was a forced sale my grand obviously my grandfather wasn't there to approve it the person he left in charge while he was gone Mm. was riding his bicycle in Amsterdam on the day of the invasion and had a heart attack and died so there was no one officially left in charge Mm. of the Houtsteker gallery and the next person uh in line was my grandmother and the process eventually through lengthy litigation and back and forth recovers some of the artwork. Yes, 202 I mean, paintings, is that 202 correct? 202 paintings, yes. I mean, after a lot of legal work and a lot of research, um, mm. but also because the Dutch government had put into place um, a restitutions committee. Mm-hmm. And only because of the restitutions committee I think were we successful in getting anything back because the government had to, you know, take the advice of the restitutions committee. And this was, mind you, this is now a few years after there was the big Holocaust asset conference in Washington Mm -hmm. where they, where they set up the principles of what countries should do and how they should handle these types of claims. And Holland was one of the countries that, at the time, you know, was following these principles. And it marks the beginning of of that process of the work. Exactly, exactly. And then along the way, um, we've had, you know, many individual pieces recovered from, Mm -hmm. you know, individual collectors or from museums. And not, it doesn't go unnoticed that the most generous and easiest to recover paintings have come from Germany, from museums in Germany. And what do you think is left to do? I mean, there is many paintings that haven't been recovered. Some have been denied, even though they have been identified, like the painting. Very frustrating because it's so blatantly obvious that they come from my grandfather's art collection and they were pieces that were returned to the Dutch government and they were in the portion of the collection that the Dutch government returned to us in those 200 paintings. 
Mm-hmm. They were in that portion of the collection. And oh, wow. yeah, that's, that is a very frustrating um, situation over there. Yeah. But so we still have, I mean, about a thousand paintings that we're trying to locate. Um, and at the moment we have a team of people in Europe doing research and trying to help locate and recover. And we still have our attorneys here in New York. Mm. And I think it's going to be a lifelong process. And, you know, as time goes by, there are, you know, fewer and fewer connections to Holocaust survivors left. So mm. it's, it, I think fewer and fewer people are going to be able to make claims. And it's just very sad. Um, what do you think you have learned about art through this process and through his collection? I mean, I've learned obviously a lot about art and um, I've learned about his tastes and yeah. um, what people wanted at, at that time. Um, but I've also learned just in life, I guess, that art is just art and it's there. It's um, material. Do you know what I mean? I, mm-hmm. I would do anything to have met my grandfather of course, and not have dealt with any of the art. Um But even before my grandfather collected these pieces, you have to think about the history of the art because some of these pieces are hundreds and hundreds of years old. Yeah, ancient. So they, each piece really could tell its own story Mm -hmm. way before my grandfather ever got involved. So it's a very, very deep um, sort of, I don't know, like quilt, if you could call it, that has mm-hmm. so many threads in it. And the That's art, the art is amazing. But I know for, for me personally, recovering the art isn't about the art. It's really just about mm. restoring my grandfather's legacy, learning more about my family and mm. correcting an, a historical injustice. That's what it's about for me. Um, what do you think you would like the town of Falmouth or Cornwall itself to to know about him? Oh, that's a, I, I don't know. <laughs> that's a good question. I think it's, you can't single out my grandfather. Everybody in that cemetery, I'm sure, is a unique individual with a story, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my, my grandfather has has a complicated, very interesting story, um, a war story and a family that continues. Um, I don't know, nothing, nothing in particular, just that he's one, one more person there with, with a really interesting story. And I feel really grateful that he's there and wasn't thrown overboard. And I have some, really you know amazing memories and images of my in my mind of my visit to Falmouth in 2008 you know and trying to find his grave on this drizzly gray morning <laughs> I'll never forget it it was kind of spooky um, yeah. but but I did and I mean I honestly hope I can make it back to Falmouth one day I'm sure it's changed a lot even in the time that I've you know since I've been there it was beautiful It was beautiful. And honestly, I couldn't think of a more beautiful place for my grandfather to be. So I think at the end of the day, I'm 
really glad that my grandmother's wishes were granted and that he has mm. a beautiful grave overlooking the sea and um and it's maintained and he's not forgotten um but i wanted to ask you so i want to go back now that we've finished and go back and visit them all again and kind of honor them and if if there's anything you would like us to do to honor jacks you know can i can i think about it and then of also course. speak to my mother because i'm sure there is and then i will send you an email and that's really nice of you to offer yeah of course i i really want to do something you know i was thinking about at least playing night and day yeah that um, would be you know what that would be amazing I'm yeah. gonna start to cry right now. <laughs> That's really amazing. That would be, you know what? Why don't we just do that? That would be, that would make my grandmother so happy. We shall definitely do it for sure. Okay. Amazing. Uh, um, my pleasure. Um, thank you so much, Charlene. Um, I really appreciate that you made the time um, to talk to me about him, about your family and, and your history and I will follow it closely, hoping that justice happens. Thank you. I appreciate that. And good luck with your project. I think it's fascinating. Thank and it's you. so nice to hear somebody doing a, you know, a little bit of an unusual project that, um, that just is, it's, it's allowing history not to be forgotten. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's nice. It's really nice because most people are just trying to make a make a buck. You know what I mean? So this is just really mm. it's it's nice that you're doing this. I uh, appreciate that very much. And also now that I have a son. Yes. It's it's is... important to me because this will be recorded somewhere, you know, over time. Yes. And maybe one day when he's old enough, he can listen, listen to it. And maybe one day I can bring him to Falmouth. Um, I was so happy to hear that his family continues. Yes, it definitely, it definitely does. His middle name is Houtsticker. Oh, how lovely. <laughs> yes. Um, that's a lot to live up to. to. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. <laughs> I'm sure he will embrace it. Yes. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate it. And my love to your family as well. Thank you so much. It was really nice talking to you. You too. Thank you, Sherzad. The work of decades continues, and the house seeker descends drive on to reclaim his legacy. I'm humble and grateful that Charlene agreed to talk to me about her family and this work. This is the first time we hear from a descendant in On the Hill, and it seems fitting that it would be on this story and on our last episode about Falmouth Cemetery on this, our first season. You might like to know that I have gone back to the cemetery and played Night and Day by Cole Porter at Jack's grave in a sunny, beautiful day. Unfortunately, because of rights reasons, I'm unable to share that song with you, but I invite you to think about it when you walk by Jack's grave. There is more to learn about this story, and we will suggest many resources for you to follow across our social media, including Charlene's talk for the Contemporary Jewish Museum, in conjunction with paintings from the collection of Jack Houseticker exhibition in 2010. If you're curious about what happened, I encourage you to investigate. There is much to remember about Houseticker, his work, 
his family's efforts, and the time in which he lived. There are some stories that live with you for a long time, longer than it has taken to tell them. This one was such for me, and even though at times I wondered whether it should be me that told it, I chose telling it, because it seems important that we remember. To end this season, here's my creative response to Jack Hausdicker, his life and his work. Black Book Open your paper trail and tell me the story of your life. What is crammed in there and what's left behind? Is the line of light that strokes your hair captured well in someone else's handwriting? Has the passport gotten the days right? Is the you that we imagined here like the you you are? How tall are you? Can I tell something about how you would hold someone's hand from the shape of your nails in a black and white photograph? Do the floorboards crunch or sigh when you walk by? How did it feel to be you in a castle? Did a magic wind run through your skin when you first heard her? What does a Rembrandt smell like? How did you choose the font of the catalogues so that house sticker could bear the weight of collection? Did you lengthen the J of your first name to have more for the G to wrap around in your signature? Do we ever know from files and paintings and stories what was it like to gather yours and leave it all but one thing behind and hope. What does Hyacinth Rigaud say to Ferdinand Ball about Jacopo del Casentino when they hang on your walls? Did Simon de Verlier paint like Pacciarotti in distemper with the colors and window light of Vermeer? And do the waters of the Herengracht Remember the time when it was you climbing the steps up to 458. For this last episode of season one, I asked Amy Lilwell to interview me about the piece I wrote inspired by Jack Housesticker. This is my interview with Amy. Okay, so I am lucky enough to talk to Sherazard now about her creative response to her research um, into the the grave of Jack Goudsticker and her creative response was titled is titled Black Book. Um so Sherazard, nice to have you here. Hi Amy, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem at all. It's great. You've obviously um you were obviously quite drawn to this grave from the very beginning. Um, I know you've been talking about it ever since, well even before the podcast um actually started. So could you tell us what did draw you to this grave? Why did you find it so fascinating? It's been with me for a long time now. 
Um, I went to the cemetery to do that first original walk with Tony Casey and just talk about it and, and see what he had already discovered. And some of those graves, as you know, are part of the ones that we have in, in the season. But um, this was the last one we looked at, and it was at the bottom of the cemetery where the newer graves are. Mm. And it, it physically looks different from the others. It's look, it looks very modern. It's this slab of concrete, um, or sorry, granite, I think it is. And it has his name. It says died on high sea and has the dates. That's it. So there's very little to know from the grave itself. Normally you get a little bit more, like a mention of the family or maybe someone else buried there. But Tony had said that he had seen in YouTube um, a talk about him, about his work. And he had discovered that he was a Jewish art dealer that escaping um, the Nazi invasion of Holland died on the way. And I just thought, well, this is really fascinating. I went to see that day, that same day, I went to see the talk and I was really shocked by that history um, and by the, the story of, of the family, of the attempts to gain the art back. And I, have, I haven't stopped thinking about it ever since. It's, <laughs> it's this idea of someone who, and the more I got to know him in the research, the more, this, the, the more strength the story felt to have. Um, he was very dedicated to the work he was doing. He was very careful with everything. So in that contrast between this huge story and the lack of knowledge that the town has of it was really one of the biggest pulls for the creation of On the Hill together, let alone this episode. Mm. Interesting. So it's been marinating away now this story for the best part of two years that's true which is yeah an awful long time actually I mean how did you feel when you started uh, to write your creative response what kind of a, a responsibility did you feel here if if you did at all yeah um definitely huge responsibility this is someone who was escaping Nazi Germany I'm not a Jewish person the question was there of do I even have the right to write about this? I, I certainly cannot, even if I can imagine it and read about it and research, I cannot even, I cannot really understand the, the extent of, of what happened in the Holocaust for the Jewish people. And that was very scary. The, the whole, how do I manage this in a way that I'm not appropriating anything? But this felt like such an important story to tell that I just tried to find um, a compromise between I am not going to appropriate anything but Disney's telling um, and I have the means to tell it. So, so I, I approached it from that perspective. And one of the things that helped so, solve that conundrum for me was the Black Book itself. That's why it's called Black Book. It's, um, there are photos of it and it's um, in a museum in, in Amsterdam now and I, once we can travel again, I, I look forward to seeing it. Um, is the fact that it, he had he was carrying it with him when he died, this very meticulous um, annotation of all the work they owned, and where was it? So a lot of the paintings were loaned out, for example. So 
Um, it explains who he bought it from, who he sold it to if it was sold, who he loaned it to. It's very, very, very meticulous. And that that was really inspiring. I felt I can respond as a researcher to that rigor um, from that perspective. Um, and I, the other thing to say, I guess, is that I've tried this piece many different times across. I tried it at the beginning of On the Hill because I thought the episode would come in earlier. I tried it after um, when we first went into the lockdown and I became an independent podcaster and I thought, well, I can do this story because I have information. And I came to many starts and stops, I guess, because I couldn't find a way in to it. It, it all felt a bit cartoonish, <laughs> if, I'm, <laughs> if I'm frank. Um, so there are attempts in my folders of of approximations to a creative response to his life. Um, and then I've been researching a bit more of Falmouth as a town during World War II. Um, and I discovered the involvement that Falmouth had in the kinder transport and the memoirs of Ingrid Jacobi about her experience as one of those children in Falmouth. And that sort of gave it a different layer. So it wasn't only about Jack's, it was, or the, the search for the art and what happened to his family. Um, it was a bigger question. Um, and actually one of the things that helped a lot was your piece on Eleanor Debt because uh -huh. you had a similar challenge there, I remember. Um, and the way you approached it and hearing you talk about the way you approached it kind of highlighted to me, okay, I don't have to be as close to this one as I have been in the other ones. I can be, the researcher can be present a bit more. <laughs> the questions of research can be present a bit more. So thank you, <laughs> Amy. Well, it's interesting that you say that, and we hadn't spoken about this before now, but while I was reading through it, it did remind me of that piece because mm. of the second person um, yeah. And also because of the questions that you're asking, there are there are lots of questions in this particular poem. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think one of the, the, the things that have become part of the style of On the Hill is uh, after, you know, trying different episodes and different themes is, is raising questions. So not necessarily answering them for the listener, because I feel that can be a bit presumptuous. Like we present you the information, we mm. raise the questions we find in in the information that we have, and in the contrast of that information with the creative piece, and kind of leave you there to to work out an answer. And I have I have so when I realized that that was part of the style of on the hill, I decided I wanted to use it more creatively and. In the meantime, since becoming aware of the story, making the first episodes, so much has happened. And I have had more contact with people who have listened to On the Hill. So at the beginning, it was just me and you, the other writer. You know? It was this kind of tight knit club. Um, and then more and more people who have listened have spoken to me about it. And one of the things that has come across is that they like the questions, they like the the kind of, I feel like I've heard this, I feel like I'm researching myself, which is lovely to hear because I really want people to feel like they, they can find these stories out themselves and the resources are available to all of them. So mm. there was a, a purpose to that. And 
I just, every time I, I was looking at his work, I was looking at the paintings and, and the story of his life and his work was kind of coming across more in all the different research. More and more questions <laughs> happened. <laughs> so it's a, it's a collection to kind of uh, an attempt to try to bring them together, you know, to make a necklace out of all of the questions. <laughs> oh, that's a lovely way of putting it, to make a necklace out of all of the questions. And I guess um, it's a way of narrowing also that distance between you mm. and, the, and the listener, you know, they're able to follow your process. And, and open up other questions, I suppose, in using questions and not making it kind of a, a, a closed experience, but giving rise to, to, to other trains of thoughts. I thought it was done really beautifully. Uh, so on the, before we go to uh, talk about the poem in a little bit more detail, um, mm. you just mentioned your research process and how you were constantly <laughs> faced mm. with different questions. Um, I, I wanted to know... Uh, what resources were available to you while you were researching? I, I wonder if this is one of the figures who who was more, I don't know, who was easier to research, I suppose, rather than being kind of obscured by history. Yeah. What do you think? Um, I would agree with that. I think I'm grateful for the work that the family has done because through that work, he has become more available. So, so there's lots of articles. So there's articles in the New York Times. There's articles... Um, in many different, there was a lot more to discover. So the 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 talk is fantastic because it does give you a lot of biographical information directly from the family itself. But it also gives you kind of a the kind of lawyer side of things. How do you go about setting a uh, a task like this? There's a book published about um, about gaining back um, some of the paintings. There's also a Christie's catalogue of the work of Gaussticker when we went up for sale. So there there are lots of publications to to go back to and, and I have encountered them gradually as I as I've gone on. When it comes to research, I think I mean the internet is the first and foremost for sure. With him it was less about finding records and more about finding what happened? So one of the records we did find um, is I went to the Bartlett Library in the Maritime Museum, and I found the record of the ship that he was in, and and it makes a note that there were refugees in the ship. So that was like the physical primary source function here in the story. And then there's lots of searches of the farm of Packet in 1940 to mm -hmm. try to find if the town registered what had happened. And we did find an article, I did find an article about it. So lots of like the kind of traditional on the hill things, but I didn't so much have to go and search for the paperwork of like, because of what the talk that Charlene von Sayer did um, for the Jewish Contemporary Museum. Then what also helped a lot, Crescent Kerno, which that's the first thing um, I did when, the, when we came out of the first lockdown is to go um, to go to the Kersen Kerner, which I hadn't used before and on the hill, not only for this episode, but but for many others. And what I found there was that connection that Falmouth had with the kinder transport. So I didn't find something Gaussticker directly, but I did find something related to the time he lived in. Um, and that led me to Ingrid Jacobi's um, memoir. So it, it was this kind of piecing together so one thing makes you read something else that then makes you read something else and 
Mm. I'm glad it took so long because I, I think if I had done it earlier, I would have had less clarity of the story and less understanding of how Falmouth was involved in it. Mm. You so have a better perspective. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, all of all of the research, all research is time limited, isn't it? But mm. this one was so gradual that at the end, this gigantic story came through. <laughs> Yes, it's really. You've been telling me about it, and it's it's really wonderful. Um, everything that you've uncovered, and all of these extraordinary events that that occurred at the same time. Mm. Um, I remember when I was researching Mary Monk, and um, I got in touch with the Plymouth History Centre, Portsmouth History Centre, sorry, and they were able to send me her address. I noticed in your poem that you refer to four five eight, yeah, um, which I assume is an address. Now, I can remember feeling really excited where the first time that I found out this piece of information because it's so personal. Um, can you tell me more about this 458 and what it means? Yeah. So 458 Herengraft in Amsterdam is the address of the art gallery, the ah. gallery. So um, this one, um, it came across in the, in the talk that she gives that I mentioned and there's a photo of Herma Goring walking down the stairs, coming out of the gallery, which is, you know, one of those moments in history that something gets, you know, caught red-handed, basically. Aha. Uh -huh. He's walking out, and he was part of of that effort the Nazis had to kind of gather all of this looted art. Yeah. Um, so it's one of those things that you can't deny. I mean, it's very obvious what happened. You literally have him walking out of that gallery. So I found that the that, that place is a kind of anchor for the whole story in the sense of this is where all the work was done. This is where, you know, the center, his his dad, his grandfather were involved in this in this work before he was. And then it gets caught because of the Nazi invasion because of the Nazi effort about the art. It's a very specific strategy. It's not something that happened randomly. And I, I just had an image in my mind of him walking back into Herengrad. So Hermann Göring's walking down the steps in the photo. And I was imagining him walking in, the, in from the other side of the stairs. Um, and I just thought, how wonderful it would be if he had had that chance of of returning, of going back. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's that's kind of a very specific place. Seems haunted, I guess, from what happened after. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and do you know if it's if it still is some uh, like a, um, uh, a building of note, I suppose. It's still there. Still, um, it, I, I've heard from from Charlene that they have seen it. Um, I don't remember if it's still running as an art gallery. I imagine that it isn't, but mm. um, I haven't found that out. But um, it is still there. It's, it's part of Amsterdam, of course, in one of the canals as well, in the Herengard Canal. I have an image of it here and it's um, it's just, it's so wonderful, as I said just now, because it brings you closer to this person when you see something that was, you know, absolutely part of them, a part of their every day. 
Yeah. Um, they're sense. extraordinary every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, uh, in the poem, you mention uh, a few painters. You mention Hyacinth Rigaud, Ferdinand Boll, and Jacopo del Casentino. Yeah. Um, why did you choose these painters in particular? I can, I love the image of them talking to each other, <laughs> hanging from the wall. My original idea, that's what I'm talking about, the cheesy. <laughs> so, it's um, lovely. But I thought a way to talk about it, about him, could be to talk about the paintings or have the paintings talk. You know, mm. the kids would have seen this in a way. I love the names themselves. Um, I love higher things. I mean, or Casentino, you know, those yeah. sounds so amazing. And um, they were part, they signify a little bit of the kind of work he did, which is a focus on all masters. Um, it, it was a, the Gaussticker um, specialty, I think. Uh -huh. Although apparently he brought new stuff into it, more portraiture and things like that. Um, so I like the idea that that those paintings would be there in the gallery talking to each other and then later you know they could they could they are the witnesses of what happened mm, and of course. i mean all, all of the paints he has rembrandts he has vermeers he has i thought well those are a bit more present than they are present in the poem but um i wanted i wanted to to show the range and that's why i chose this specific painter Mm, yes, um, I, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with these painters, but a quick search and you see the, the range in, in their work, the different, uh, the different styles that they evoke. I, I thought that they were really nicely chosen, actually. And as you say, they're not typical of, I don't know, um, they're maybe not painters that you would, you'd know immediately, as you say, like uh, Rembrandt, for example. So you've yeah. really, you really searched the, the, the fun names, I suppose. You've done the, writer, <laughs> the writerly thing of finding the fun sounding names. <laughs> um, lovely. Now you mention her in the poem. I imagine mm. you're referring to Desi. Yes, Desi. So this is something that I learned from Charlene as well, and, and listeners would have from the podcast. Um, they, he invited her to the castle where he would host Tableau Vivant, which is um, kind of those paintings brought to life or sculptures brought to life. And she's an opera singer. He, brought, he brings her in, she sings in the party. And then from what Charlene says, apparently he wrote to her, which I find amazing and super cheeky. He wrote to mm -hmm. her. Like she went back home basically. And he sent her flowers and he wrote, you better start learning Dutch, which I just thought um, impossible not to react to something like that. Like it, it was very, very blunt. Like, you know, you're gonna be my wife basically. Um, yeah. so, and apparently they got on immediately and and were really happy together. So in, in married quickly, it was kind of love at first sight. It seems like this romance, this beautiful romance of people who love art and seem to have had a lot in common and it gets cut short, basically, by the events in life, basically. But mm. I, I just thought, if how, how does love at first sight happen, you know? This is someone who's used to beauty, you know? He's completely surrounded by beauty all the time. He's creating it as well. And in walks in the person 
that's the love of his life. What does that feel like? And it feel it sounds from what Charlene says that obviously she had to move on and, and continue her life. She remarried, but it does sound like she did hold a place, a special place for him and throughout her life. I like the idea of, of love arriving as wind, you know, like this this thing that you notice yourself alone and the rest of the world is doing its thing. But you know that that for you the world has changed. And I wanted to capture that, to, to hold them together in the poem. Yeah, and it's I mean it's a beautiful verse, that particular one. Um and the wind really makes me makes me think of voice, I suppose. Mm. Did a magic wind run through your skin when you first heard her? Like, it has to be heard as well. This is yeah. That's that kind of rings the bell to to her talent and mm, yes, to her work. Absolutely, it kind of um, puts her shoulder to shoulder with him. Mm. Um, yeah, wonderful. There's another line that I was really intrigued about. If you wouldn't mind unpacking it a little bit. Sure. Um, did you lengthen the J of your first name to have more for the G to wrap around your signature? Tell us about that. Um, if you see his signature, um, the J is longer than the rest of the letters as, mm -hmm. as a capital letter, but then the G wraps around all of it. It's this kind of very artistic signature. Um, and it seems like someone who was that aware. Um, I wonder if he, he thought about that every time he saw, he, or the moment he designed his signature. He did it with an artistic understanding of what it would look like. It's quite a beautiful signature, actually. And I, I thought Gaussticker was the name of the of the um, of the gallery that seemed to bind the legacy um, with his father and grandfather, who were also art dealers. Um, and it would have been a very recognized name in the time. So mm. I thought, like he, I, I felt like the, this is someone who understands. Maybe not necessarily the the term for the right time, but who understands brand? You see what I'm mm. saying? Gauss sticker is this, the the thing that wraps around everything. So I thought he had done it on purpose. That that's, that was my question to him. Did you design this on purpose so that it looks like the legacy is holding you? You see what mm. I mean? No, I see exactly what you mean. That's really beautifully explained, actually. And I haven't seen the signature that even you mentioning it. Um, it, it conjures up a, a very nice image of what that could look like. Wonderful. And actually, um, I, what I have seen is a photo that you sent me um, of Gauss sticker. And uh, he looks like a very neat and tidy man. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it it was to do with the line, uh, the line of light that strokes your hair, which I think is particularly beautiful. But then when you see the, the photo, you see that it's quite literal. It's, it's exactly, yes. you're, you're depicting this, this, the way that his hair catches the light. And it makes me think of, you know, <laughs> what kind of hair product you would have used to have his hair so, so neat. Yes. But why was that? Um, so two questions. Why was that an important image for you to capture? And is this the only photo that you have of him? Hmm. There are a few actually. Um, okay. So this is the one I first saw, and mm -hmm. he's sitting down. He seems to be like in a lecture or something. It seems to be a talk or some kind. He's paying attention, and 
I imagined it was a, an auction. I don't know why. Yeah, That's just a flight maybe. of fancy, but yeah. That makes sense, actually. That makes sense. That he's definitely concentrated. And mm. I like that. I like that photo more than the other ones because it seems he comes across like a, obviously he was a real person, but there I can see him. I can see him even move. Mm. Uh, and that one hints at that line of light in the hair, but the one in the Christie's magazine, the catalog, um, there's the line uh, again so he had this kind of side parting uh -huh. uh, very combed through so he must have had some kind of pomade or oil or something to to keep the the hair very neat and tidy um mm. also part of that aesthetic awareness he has and the line is there again there's always this line in his hair um mm. of light which i thought is interesting if you don't have the photo those details don't happen. You know, we don't have photos of a lot of the people we talked about. Um, yeah. The hill, we, we can only imagine them. And we do have of some. And, but I thought, what happens if, if someone is trying to, you know, record your name or something or talk about you in an article, but no one, but, well, we don't know. We don't know what your hair looks like, which sounds perhaps simple, but at the same time, it's very real, isn't it? The way your hair looks, the way Desi's hair looked, tells you a lot about the person. Yeah. I just wanted to to work on that contrast between we can know a lot about you on paper and still don't know you. Um, you kind of bring that dichotomy into it. Mm, that's very interesting. And all of that encompassed in that little line. <laughs> you're absolutely right you can tell a lot about a person um and about an era as well and mm -hmm. i hadn't thought about that either that many of the people that we've been discussing we don't have photographs of them because obviously they lived in a time where that just wasn't normal practice so yeah, yeah um i i guess it's quite a luxury actually to have this image and yeah um, imagine now now there's like 10 versions of you holding a fork <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know, we're not out of luck there. There's my niece who's almost four, you know, we literally have all of her movements. You can scroll through to when she was a baby and back into she's now. And mm. before we, people would have to to remember more, <laughs> to anchor the person in a different way. Absolutely. No, absolutely. It's so interesting. But um, I mean, this particular image you've, there is gesture and movement in that, which is, mm -hmm. you know, um, so readily, you know, takeable, I suppose, for your, for your poem. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great line. It really is. Um, so I think I'm going to move on to probably my last question, if that's okay, okay with you, Sherazad. And you were, we've, we've already discussed the fact that you've conducted a great deal of research and this has been your grand finale, I suppose, for, for the, on the Hill season one. Um, now, you've also mentioned that there were so many different events that seemed to occur around the same time. And you kind of compared this to, to um, the storyline to, to a movie, I suppose. Just you couldn't write this, basically, no. everything that happened within a very short space of time. So no. what was the most interesting thing you think that you discovered? over the course of your, your research? Um, I think the most, the thing, this happened with 
another story to the, the mystical mourner where I literally gasped. Um, <laughs> where I was looking with a mystical mourner, I was looking through um, a book in Polish, which unfortunately I don't understand. And on a whim, I looked at Falma in the book, hoping that for some reason, because it was about the same ship he died in. Um, and I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe if I'm lucky, it's there. And I type five months and it shows up. And it shows up and it has a little map of it. And I couldn't believe my luck. I was like, okay, wonderful. From a, from a researcher perspective, to actually find the thing you think happens in, in the archives is fantastic. But with this one, I had no idea. Um, so it was even more surprising. I knew that the Bodegraven, the, the ship he had escaped in with his family, had refugees. So that was the first gasp. I went to the Maritime Library and I just wanted to, to see if there was a record of the ship being in Falmouth. Um, and I found it. And when I look across, because um, there's always like the they write down the captain or which city was going to, which city came from, you know, there are specific kind of data that, that the record grabs. And then at the end, there's a commentary. It said, for instructions, 258 refugees on board. And that it was there. It was him. It was one of them there. Yeah. And I couldn't believe it. I, I thought, oh, wow, okay. And then I started looking across the record. And that was the first time in 1940, the record ever records refugees on board a ship. And then it keeps on recording them for a few months, up until the thousands. There's a time where it's like a thousand four hundred, I think. And it's just a tiny little note. It, it's someone handwriting a number on a piece of paper, but that signifies so much more about the war. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And then on another of the days that I was researching this, Again, the Bodegraven. And I said, I'm just going to Google the Bodegraven and see what happens. And the first thing that comes up, it said the last boat of the Kinder Transport. And then that, that tiny number that I had seen on a piece of paper suddenly became so much more important because there were identities attached directly to those numbers. It wasn't just a number. It was a number of part of that 74 were children uh, from the Kinder Transport. And I just... It's like, honestly, if you if you write down in a piece of fiction, no one is going to believe you. <laughs> These mm. coincidences, or not, they weren't coincidences. They were casualties directly related to the war. Uh-huh. Of course, they wanted to escape. Of course, they're going to make the boats as full of people as they can. But how it ties all to Falmouth again and how it gets anchored on an archival document, you know, on, on someone's record of, of arrivals and is all those tiny little knots of the story that that really lead you somewhere else. And I, I couldn't believe it. I, I was in shock. I ran down the stairs to tell my partner, <laughs> look, look, what happened? It's this boat. So it's not only important for them because they managed to escape, but it's important historically and it's important for all the people that managed to be saved out of this horrible event that happened, you know? Mm. So it was like a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah. a miracle. They barely got out. Unbelievable. And I, I, it starts to give them identities, I suppose. And yeah. they're, they're no longer, you know, they're no longer just numbers. They're, they're people. Exactly. Mm. Especially for, well, for you, the researcher who, who, who's really close to the story. Um, all of a sudden, these people, as I said, they become people again. 
uh, yeah. which is a wonderful moment, I imagine. It is. It's, it's very heartbreaking, too, because of what it means, you know. Of course, yeah. Um, and I've, I, I think if, if we tie these events in history to something, to someone, then it's closer to, to you to understand, you know, oh, this person had a wife, a, ch a child, for example, or what mm -hmm. happened to these children without their parents. You know, it's, it's easier to make it more, less statistical and more human. Mm, more about the community. Mm. Mm, wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Sherazad. That draws this discussion to a close. Can we expect a season two? Yes, we can expect season two, hopefully, towards the autumn. Um, I'll begin working on it soon enough. Um, but I'm moving on right now to another podcast about Ooh. Venezuela. More about that later. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, Amy. I really appreciate it. Oh, gosh, a pleasure. Thank you, Sherazad. This season has been our first, our first for many things, and I am so grateful that you have listened and grateful to the many people that helped me create On The Hill. We will continue to another season and I can't wait to share old stories and new creative responses with you. We will be moving to another cemetery for our research, but who knows? We do love Falmouth and we might come by and visit it again. Just a few days ago, I was there in the sun, singing night and day and remembering Jack's story. To end this episode, I wanted to take a moment and share a change that has taken place since a summer in June 2018 when I first walked in Falmouth Cemetery. I have become a Falmouthian in my own way, reading about this town, its people, its story, walking around trying to record the seagulls or the horns of the ships or the waves of the sea against the shore, have built tendrils of bounds between me and this town. I hope this season has helped you understand, like it has me, that belonging takes different shapes, that there are really no others, that we all come and go in some ways, and that death is not the final stage in the story. I hope you too walk around this town, or your town, in wonderment, connected to those who walked here before, and breathing signals to those who will walk here after. See you in the autumn for a new season, a new cemetery, and many, many new stories. Thank you for listening to On The Hill. My immense thanks to Charlene Von Sayer for talking to me about Jacks and their work. Thank you to Tony Casey for first telling me about this story and always sharing generously his growing knowledge about Falmouth Cemetery. Thank you to the best Victorian boys, Alex Horn, and to Amy Lewell, both of whom have supported this project all along. Thank you to the staff at Kersen Kernel and at the Falmouth Town Library for helping me gain access to the resources I needed for this episode. And thanks to you for staying with us as we explore Falmouth Cemetery one episode at a time, one story to uncover. Your support has amazed me, and I hope we can continue to count on it on season two. In the meantime, I hope you revisit these stories and continue to spread the word about the work we do here at On The Hill. And if you haven't, I would be so grateful if you could rate and review our show to help others find it. You can continue to follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at We Are On The Hill. 
On the Hill is written, recorded and produced in Falmouth by me, with the help of amazing local people and a host of talented writers. Research about Jack Hausticker, Falmouth Cemetery, Falmouth History and World War II by me. Fragments from the Lex Falmouth Packet and the National Archives read by Alex Horn. Creative piece by me. In this episode, you have heard Jack Hausticker's mother-in-law, Selma Kurtz, singing D'Amor Sulia Le Rose from Il Trovatore by Giuseppe Verdi, recorded in 1911. You have also heard Everything's Agreed Upon by the Rhythm Boys as broadcast on the Walker O'Keefe show in May 1930. You have heard David Reutemann singing Le Dor Bor Nagy Golecha in Udrive Codecha, digitized by Florida Atlantic University in 1922. You have heard Neville's Chamberlain's Declaration of War in 1939, Maybe by the Ink Spots, recorded in 1940, Anchors Away by the United States Naval Academy Band, Winston Churchill's first speech at Parliament in May 1940, Avinu Malkeinu, The Jewish Prayer by the Lin Ron Choir, Herlis Ja Israel, Had Kiva sung by Holocaust survivors at the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp after the liberation by British forces, on the 15th of April 1945, and you have also heard Billy Jones' Ain't We Got Fun, restored by Adam Curtin and originally recorded in 1922. This episode was edited by me. Our haunting and beautiful theme song is Precious Things by We Are Muffy. Join us in the autumn for season two. I am Sherezai Garcia Rangel, and this is On the Hill. Dream.